0: I just want to start off saying I love um, doing psalms like that. If you, um, you, know, you know this, but scripture is a, is a powerful word. It does more than just teach us things. It is, in a way, God's presence to us. If you, if you keep small portions of scripture close to you, it will begin to do stuff to you that you don't even think about. And I love the way uh, that we can take just one portion of a psalm and meditate on it. Keep it deep in your soul. Anyway, I commend that to you, this Lent. So um, it is indeed the the season of Lent. I'm going to come down here. Um, and uh, we have been doing a number of things in Lent. Um, w- one of the things that's typically encouraged, it's in the Book of Common Prayer, is fasting. And then the other is uh, meditating on and uh, discerning Scripture. So we have, as a, as a parish, been going through First and Second Samuel in this small group curriculum that we've um, sort of dreamed up several years ago during the pandemic, and one of the things that is most shocking to me about first and second Samuel is you know it's this whole story about God building a kingdom out of this collection of tribes in Israel he's making them into something real, something substantial, something noticeable, and he does that through these these kings that he calls and their prophets who correct them. but as you read through the story uh, one of the things you, you just cannot avoid is how quickly things go off the rails. And it's not even a one-time thing. I mean, it happens again and again and again. It is all over the place. There are some truly dark moments in uh, the building of the kingdom of Israel. And what's really surprising to me about this, causes me to think is, you know, here in this, this magisterial telling of Israel's own origins and development, the Israelites conclude, uh, include every terrible detail. Sort of think of it, like it, of it like this. If you went and picked up a brochure on your way into like, some other country, say a Caribbean nation or something, and in the brochure you opened it up and on the left it said all the wonderful things about the country, but then on the right it told you all the most horrible things about the country. Come and visit Barbuda, you know. Uh, It would not be that effective. So the question I have is why in the world would these Israelites be so brutally honest about their failures? And in such a public way, of course. This is quite literally the most popular book that has ever existed. And here are the faults of an entire people for everyone to see. And I think there are two answers to this. The first one is the Israelites actually believed That the only person whose opinion truly mattered, God, already knew everything about them. Some marvelous way, beyond our knowing, the God of Israel, the God of all creation, uh, lives with the people of Israel. He settled with them, made his home and dwelling with them, and so he knew everything they did. So they know they can't hide it. There's no covering up. But then the second, I think these people could be so absolutely honest because they also Believed that every person on earth was born into this condition of disorder that impacted every single aspect of our world and life and experience, and it all had this common origin. That's just what we read about in uh, the passage from Genesis this morning. They thought that every single problem in the world, whether it be injustice or warfare or natural catastrophe or broken relationships or illness or famine, all of it had this common source, a common name, and they called it sin. Sin. It's a word most of you are probably abundantly familiar with. It's not really a special word to most of us. But most of us never really reflect on what sin is exactly, and most of us never reflect on why that would really matter in the first place. And I think that's understandable also because sin itself, if you look back at the Christian tradition, or if you just uh, enter into some practical reflection, sin has all kinds of ways of describing it. It's, defined, it's been defined um, in terms of action, think of sin as an act of disobedience. It's a common way to think about it. It's also been understood as a kind of power, um, maybe something demonic, uh, something external to us. Uh, Even it's been described as something absurd. It's also been understood in in cosmic terms, so almost environmental, something that's pervasive. um, It's a kind of rupture between uh, goodness and, and the created order. And so I think we get the slippery way that sin is somewhat naturally. Think about it. It gets complicated so fast as soon as you start reflecting on what the problem with this world actually, truly is. As in, we can think, just think about it, we can think sin is all about other people, like truly wicked people, Hitler or or serial killers or something. But then we begin to wonder why we can't fully be the kinds of people that we ourselves want to be, right? Gentle and patient, kind, long-suffering, enduring. Or we begin to study some of those people. One of the shocking things you read if you read about really, um, I mean, dramatically horrible people like Hitler is they were actually quite normal. Accounts of these wretched people uh, are, are really strange because of their normalcy. Or maybe you think of sin in purely moral terms and then you begin to wonder well what about all of the disaster and suffering? What about things that simply uh, plague us like, like disease? Where does that come from? So you see sin can't just be purely moral either. There's also something deeper going on with our world. And I think this is precisely where the passages from Genesis, well-read passages, well-known passages, passages that have endured through many cultures and civilizations, begin to make sense. So you'll notice in our passage, there are at least, I think, at least two characteristics or aspects of sin that are abundantly present. The first is, Adam and Eve disobey God. There's that moral component that I mentioned, sin is action. And then you'll notice there's something outside and even external to this whole sequence. The the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and pulls them over, wins them, coerces them to a particular side. And that sin is a kind of power. So I want to look at that disobedience part first. That's the part that I think most of us are familiar with. Adam and Eve, if you look at the story, Adam and Eve receive a commandment from God, and they disobey him. Now, I want to note that the commandment in and of itself, I find that to be very interesting because most of us would wonder, well, why on earth would there be a commandment in a world that is absolutely perfect, pure, and exactly as it is intended to be? Why is there a need for a commandment in a world of no disorder? I think some thinkers, if you read back commentaries on this sort of thing, some thinkers will try to describe this in material terms. So like they'll say maybe God told them not to eat from the tree because um, the tree itself was somehow unsafe. Maybe the fruit was, was poisonous. Maybe it was close to some sort of danger that is not mentioned in the text. I think there's some truth to this. Of course, if you read later on, uh, Many dangerous things do happen to human beings. Death enters into the world through this act of disobedience. I think the text is abundantly clear on this part. They see the tree. Notice the description. It was beautiful, attractive. The food seemed good to eat. It gave one wisdom, good things. And so I think it is not the tree in and of itself. Rather, it's the transgression. In other words, it is about the simple fact that they disobey. They turn to whatever it is that God had not willed in a world that is perfectly in accord with God's will. If you read Christian theologians on this, they'll typically describe it in terms of um, this command being a logical component of how God gives humans free will in a world that is also free. There are no guardrails in the Garden of Eden, Right? It's not like when you go to Yosemite or something, there's a guardrail there. It, it's, you, <laughs> there are natural consequences of the things that happen because God has given us volition, the free capacity to live in a world that is also free. You can choose to do things in, uh, against the grain of God's created uh, order out of uh, accord with his own goodness. So we have volition. We're given... The way to reflect God's character in the world, you know this, but we are made in God's image. One of the ways folks have talked about being made in God's own image is that we are free, we have volition and reason, we have language. In order for us to be truly made in God's image, there has to be the possibility of transgression. There has to be. So you see, anything, sin, sin is anything that moves outside of that divine order And in this way, the commandment to not eat of the tree is less about the fruit, less about the tree, and more about this freely given possibility that humans can liberally make decisions because we're made in God's image. And you'll notice this, as soon as they eat, as soon as they eat, they know the difference between good and evil, between sacred and profane, between God's will and what is not. It's even more fascinating if you notice what they do at the very end of our reading. What is sacred, the human body, it suddenly takes on the possibility to be profaned, right? They cover up. They experience shame for the first time. So you see, I think this whole idea of sin, is, of disobedience, it is about living in a sacred world, being sacred creatures, made in God's own sacred image, but then turning away from that created goodness itself. Does that make sense? you don't have to say yes. You tell me later, that didn't make sense. (laughs) Now, the other way that we can think of sin that I think is abundantly clear in this passage is the way it exists as power. Even a quick glance at the story lends this. Now, now I do think this aspect of sin is both easier and harder for us to comprehend Um, because we are, uh, whether you know it or not, late modern Americans. What that means is we think largely in material descriptive terms. We are not um, at our core, a sort of poetic and literary culture. Now, I know some of you are like, I love literature, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, when you think about yourself, and who you are, and the world around you, we tend to think in economic or, or material terms. We don't tend to think immediately, look, if I asked you who you were, you wouldn't burst into song, most of you. Maybe, maybe some of you would I don't know. Most of you would not. I certainly wouldn't. And so most of us are not trained to think about ourselves in in terms of myth or story or song and narrative. And what that means is when we look at this narrative of creation and the emergence of sin, we naturally sort of expect to find some manual or handbook or descriptive set of categories on the composition of the created world, don't we? But you don't find that, do you? Because that's not what's there. Rather, we find this highly intentionally designed story. A story that, by the way, just so you know, I believe is absolutely true in the truest sense of that word. I believe it is given to us by God. I do, however, not believe uh, that it is a, a textbook. It's not a textbook. No, no sort of first glance would give you that sense. And so when you step into Genesis 3, this whole story of the fall, and discover how sin enters into the world, we learn that it is smuggled in by a serpent. Again, uh, it's a figure who comes across as as mysterious to us, perhaps even demonic, strange. But notice what I'm getting at here. Sin is something that is external and active, something other than simply what we decide to do or don't decide to do. You notice Adam and Eve, they, they don't decide to encounter the serpent. The serpent simply shows up. And I think this makes all the sense in the world as you continue in the story of Genesis, just in the very next chapter, the first time the word sin is used in the Bible, it's right before Cain does something very wicked to his brother Abel. You'll notice this. God tells him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must learn to rule over it, right? Right? Sin is not just an act of disobedience. It is something that can crouch at your door. It is something that desires for you. It is active. It is a kind of power that overcomes even the strongest of our own wills and desires. And while I think even if we uh, are uncomfortable with this sort of language, sin entering into the world as power, perhaps demonic, perhaps something else that we don't have a category for, just think about it for a minute. Why, why is addiction so hard for people to break? Why can't people just stop? I know that some of you, it, it's science, you know, it's chemicals and all that, but that doesn't explain why, that explains what? Why? Why is it so hard? Why is it that normal people, very normal people that you and I know and love can suddenly simply break? Everyone has seen this happen. You all know what I'm talking about. Why is it that disasters just happen out of nowhere? Why is it that even when we try to behave in particular ways to people that we love, our friends and families, those that we most cherish, we still end up hurting them? So you can say or believe whatever you want about serpents and demons and the devil, but sin is most certainly a power. And I think everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. It's a power. I have a friend who says, sorry to lower the tone here, I have a friend who says that sin is like being locked in a room with a bear. It's one, you know that it's there and it's way bigger than you. You're not going to get away from it. So what do we do? What do we do? Sin is an act of volition on our own parts. It's also a power. What do we do? Here are two things that I think we see in our passages today that I want to leave you with. First is this, do not ever, ever forget what we see in our gospel reading and the basic point of what we encounter in that narrative. Jesus knows exactly what you and I live in and go through every single day. The gospels, all of them make this clear. Jesus begins his ministry. Notice, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. How does he do that? By being tempted. What does that say about who he is? That he is truly human. He's not different than you. He is and he isn't. But everything that you experience, all the struggles you have, all the things that that keep you up, Jesus knows all of those things. He has experienced all of those things. There is nothing that you can experience that he has not experienced. He is absolutely human. Our reading last week, if you were here, was from Corinthians. Paul says that Jesus became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might have the righteousness of God. strange way of putting this. Jesus is not a sinner, of course, but what what he's trying to say is that Jesus steps into the entire world of sin. He is engulfed in a whole condition of sin that we all know and experience at every moment he knows it. He's been inside of it. And he is nonetheless a sinner. So you do not need to feel alone. Not only have all of you experienced this, but your Savior, the God who loved you, made you, knows you, has gone through the exact same thing as well. And you know what? He has compassion. He has compassion on your condition because He knows it. Now, the second thing is sin loses its power over you, I believe, when you name it before God. That is, if you confess your sin, you cry out against the brokenness of the world, you tell Uh, God, what it is that most ails you, plagues you, makes you angry, brings you dread, or keeps you up at night, you turn yourself to God and you tell him, this is what I've done, or this is what's been done to me, this is what is broken about my world, and this is how angry I am, this is how sad I am, this is uh, uh, what I am most concerned about, you just lay it, give it entirely to him. Why? Why? because he already knows it. He can take it. He has experienced all of the things that you're angry or frustrated or sad about. And if you lay over all of the pains of this world of a sinful condition to him, sin begins to lose its power over you. You confess and you cry out to God. I think of it a little like this. You can see this emerging in a uh, in this story, I was reading a book last week by uh, a professor named Brent Strong, um, and in it he mentioned a, a story of a man who, in 2004, started this project called Post Secret. Have any of y'all heard of this Post Secret? Uh, anyway, he sent out thousands, thousands of self-addressed postcards inviting people uh, to send him their anonymous secrets, and so for something like. I mean, years and years. He collected people's responses, all of these responses. I think uh, it said, in fact, that he'd received something like 500,000 responses from people. And I just want you to listen to a few of these examples. Here are the things that people wrote in anonymously to this man. One says, I wonder what it would have been like if I chose the other man instead of my husband. One says, I hope my child doesn't turn out like me. One says, I have two master's degrees and a doctorate, but I still feel like a failure. One says, I'm a 40-year-old child. One says, I've wanted to die for 36 years. One says, this resonated with me, some days my collar feels like a noose. Apparently some people send in hundreds of these throughout long periods of their own life. And the one that was most fascinating to me was this one. The person wrote, I used to write my secrets on postcards. They were never posted. Now I tell them to real people that know me and care about me. Thank you, post secret. Goodbye. You see what happens. You confess to God. You confess to the one that knows you You confess to the one who loves you. And Sin, shame, guilt, the powers of this world, they don't stop hurting, but their power is released. So my commendation to all of you in this Lenten season is is really simple. One, remember throughout all of this Lenten season when you reflect on your sin, you know what it is. Remember that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. And second, confess. Cry out. Tell God exactly what's going on. And watch the power of sin begin to dissolve around your life, your relationships, your family. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.